to Genesis chapter 15. Um, And we're actually only going to do a few verses today, so we will read them beforehand. Uh, We're going to start with verse 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able um, to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. May God bless you in his word. Um, I apologize in advance. I'm a little sick. <laughs> and so I might have to struggle through this, and I might lean a little bit, but it's not because um, I'm lazy. It's because... This is a good, sturdy podium. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're now on Genesis chapter 15. Um, and basically what's happened is, is that we're looking at Abram's life and what has happened to him, to Lot, to his family. And still that long-expected question of uh, uh, how is Abram going to have offspring? How, where is his offspring going to be? Where is his heir from his family, at least? Lot was the one, we thought, but now Lot's gone. Um, and so even though he just saved Lot, Lot is still not in the picture. Lot just went right back to Sodom. Um, and so at this point, Abram's kind of wondering, what is it, God, that you're going to do? Um, and so here we come to verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So the beginning of chapter 15 reflects briefly on what had just occurred in chapter 14. We see this when it says, after these things. Thus, after the battles against the eastern kings, especially the victory uh, given to Abram by God over Kedor La Omer. I did research. That is how you say that name. Kedor La Omer. Um, the leader of the eastern kings. Upon this conquest, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, when it comes to the word of the Lord, it is a common expression in regards to prophecy and prophets. However, in Genesis, there are only two places where um, that expression is used, and both happen in this chapter. Likewise, the term vision is a rare word used only in regards to Balaam, and as scholars note, prophets during the time of Ezekiel. Though earlier in history, it was used as a phrase to denote revelations um, prior to even Ezekiel. The fact that God begins with fear not, um, it's interesting, because we often portray God as not needing to be feared. Yet in this statement, we see God is telling Abram not to fear, which can imply that he had reason to fear. Uh, There is fear of the Lord, which is good. We find that in the Proverbs and right. Likewise, whenever anyone is confronted by God in the Old Testament, there is usually a high level of fear, uh, though there are many times in which God gives revelation with the phrase, fear not. Two ways this can be taken, then, is as a military recognition, since a military campaign was just described with Abram, or as a simple realization for Abram that he does not need to fear the living God. Um, And it's either way makes sense in this context. Likewise, the military imagery continues with God saying, He is Abram's shield. As Melchizedek stated in the previous chapter, God was the one who brought Abram the victory. 
Thus, for God to be Abram's shield represents God as being on Abram's side, his protector. He is for Abram. Finally, the Lord concludes his word with the promise that Abram's reward shall be very great. By following God, Abram is guaranteed the promise from God himself. Now we come to verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So at this point in the narrative, Abram's concern over the promise is laid bare. Uh, Thus far, his only heir had been Lot, as we talked about previously. But as such, Lot continues to separate himself from Abram. Likewise, the reality that Sarai is barren continues to weigh heavily on the promise. Likewise, what good is receiving a blessing if it will simply die out with Abram? When we also consider how having children is almost the blessing in Genesis, the blessing in Genesis, the fact that Abram and Sarai do not have children goes against everything that we've learned thus far about people who are blessed. So it is, Abram is thinking ahead. He questions whether the heir will be someone not of his kin, that is, Eliezer of Damascus. Uh, This is not a family member, but a high-ranking servant or a high-ranking servant's son. Thus, is Abram to adopt this individual, and then would that be the heir apparent? Abram's exasperation continues with verse 3 as he appeals directly to God's providence. Notice how he says, you have given me no offspring. It is a reminder that in the scriptures, offspring children are not merely byproducts of human passion, good or bad, but are from God. The continuation of the human race via progeny is a gift, not a curse, nor a hindrance to human existence. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Again, the final phrase returns us to the appeal. Shall a member, a servant, inherit? Abram's concern is a valid concern. As throughout Abram's narrative, we have had this tension of possible offspring and yet a barren Sarai. Now we come to verses 4 through, I think, 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God responds to Abram's concern. He informs Abram that the servant shall not be the heir of the promise. Instead, Abram will certainly have a son, and he will be the heir of the promise. From Abram will come a child who will continue to carry the promise. And as such, this child will be the heir of the inheritance which God has given to Abram and his offspring. At this time, we have, in in my mind, a beautiful moment. Um, God brings Abram outside and tells Abram to look up at the nighttime sky. We can assume that the sky was a clear night, one in which Abram could see the stars in their abundance. And God tells Abram to behold them, to consider them, these stars in their masses and in their multitudes. Yet the point is not that Abram should simply stop and stare, but that just as the multitudes of these stars exist, so shall the offspring of Abram himself be. When we consider in our own nighttime sky that we view not only stars but galaxies, and within those galaxies are billions of stars, it reminds us that the numbers will be uncountable by human standards. Through Abram, will come many descendants, God has promised us, and he will certainly deliver. Now we come to verse 6. And he beheld, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Um, 
All right. So one of the most important verses in the Old Testament for the New Testament is this verse. Abram believes in the Lord. Though Abram has no evidence that the promise is going to occur, he has nothing to go on except for the word of the Lord. There is no evidence apart from the character of this God who has delivered him, who has kept him safe, who has delivered enemies into his hands. It is in this God that Abram places his trust, um, his faith, and places his faith in the promise that God has said through his word. This faith in Abram uh, is counted to him as righteousness by God. The second statement is the one which holds sway in the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, to have righteousness means acting a just or righteous way. That is, by doing good works or following the law. Now in Habakkuk 2.4, we find that the righteous shall live by faith, but it is only here in the entirety of the Old Testament is faith itself stated as declaring someone righteous. Usually when righteousness is declared of a person in the Old Testament, it reflects an acquittal by God against the person's sins. Thus, the righteous person is not under condemnation. Here this acquittal occurs because of belief, not because Abram has done anything or worked out at anything. We find then that Abram is declared righteous by God in this moment of faith. All right. So the main point of this chapter thus far is for the Lord to reaffirm his promises, such as protection and blessings, to Abram. Likewise, it gives Abram the ability to vocalize his concerns, and even his own exasperation over not yet seeing the promise being fulfilled. Still, God reaffirms not only his protection of Abram, but also the promise of an heir from Abram himself. Abram believes the word of the, word of the Lord, and as such, it is counted to him as righteousness. Alrighty. So, a few application points. And pardon my tissue. Um, the first one is one that we've talked about a lot. Um, and I know we've hit on the subject a number of times in Genesis. And I know it can be hard for us to sometimes hear some repetition in teaching. Uh, yet repetition can also be a good thing. It can remind us of things that we have forgotten. Or it can solidify beliefs and truths that we have not yet considered or grounded ourselves in yet. Though we've heard it multiple times and perhaps not allowing it as of yet to let it sink into our hearts. So I know it's a, a repetition in a way, but it's, it's necessary. So because of this, I do think it to be wise to consider the words of Abram when he says, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Um, by now we have seen throughout Genesis that the continued generation upon generation is a blessing from God to humanity. Uh, now let's repeat this one time a different way. Children are not merely a means of procreation from a physical process. Instead, the offspring of humanity comes by God's blessing, according to Genesis and according to the whole scripture. Unfortunately, this flies in the face of our modern era. For those outside of the church, many believe that offspring are simply that, part of the physical process. Just as they came about by random chance into this world via physical means, so their offspring come into the world by random chance via physical means. And because of this naturalistic, this, this lack of spiritual response to children, there are those who think little of having a child. Now from this you have the abortion debate, in which individuals believe there is nothing sacred or spectacular about children, and because of that a fetus within a woman's womb is merely something which is to be discarded and abandoned if said woman desires. If children are simply a byproduct, then it is hard to argue this fact. 
If children and humanity in general has no purpose, and they have no true sanctity, dignity, or worth, then it stands to reason that such a view of humanity at any point in their lives is one which humanity can be discarded and disregarded. So that is one side of the spectrum. There are individuals who believe these things about humanity, and they truly do. Um, But then there's the other side. And... That's that individuals who know and understand children are a blessing and that each child is made in the image of God and therefore has sanctity, dignity, and worth by simply being. Uh, But as soon as the child comes into the world through some means other than, let's say, marriage, then there are those children who are already doomed, according to some people. Such individuals will say in one breath, all children are made in the image of God. And then in the next say, I can't believe she's going to have a baby with him. Or, I can't believe she got pregnant. Her life is ruined. Has anyone ever heard that before? I'll give you an example. Um, And this is not in the PowerPoint. Um, It was after we had moved up here. And um, at one point, a family member said to us, it was a mistake to have Libby because of our circumstances. Um, And so you see that dichotomy of one. And they fully believe that children are a blessing. But because of our circumstances that we were in, they were like, oh, well, it was a mistake to have a child. You take that as you will. I took it very offensively. Um, anyway, I think that this kind of hypocrisy is the reason why abortion clinics exist to begin with. We can't say in one breath, all children are a blessing, and then the next say, this person's life is ruined. Such a thing will only lead to individuals to look at their child and always feel guilt over a past action. It also leads them to possibly resent their children and always think, this child has ruined my life. Instead, we should continue to uphold the scriptural view of children. All humanity bears the image of the Creator, regardless of what stage in their life they're at. If the church wants to make a serious impact on social debates like abortion, it needs to reevaluate the discussion and root out the hypocrisy. We need to return and say, in the scriptural teaching of descendants of babies, of children, and what each child means in view of being made in the image of God. We need to rejoice over every single one and be thankful for every single one. What of those who do, not, who do get pregnant under less than ideal circumstances? Well, the scriptures teach to take care of such individuals by being present in their lives and walking with them. If their family rejects them, then the church should step in and bless them. Does this mean that we should allow everyone to procreate, whoever they want, or however they want? Of course not. Uh, But let's not put the child under the curse of the parent or make any child less than the blessing that they are. All children are a blessing from God. Let's not cast a shadow on such a blessing, but let's embrace every blessing as from him and lead all children into knowing who they are as created in the image of God and who can find redemption in Christ Jesus. Um, and before we get to the next point, um, and I think that's why it's so important for in the scriptures for us to be called, um, for Paul to say to Timothy, for example, look at older individuals as fathers and as um, older women as mothers and younger as brothers and sisters. I think it's so important because we do have these spiritual fathers and sisters and family in this church, in this congregation, in our communities of faith. And so when we look at individuals who might have been raised in a less than ideal circumstance, you can make an impact on their lives. God can use you to be gracious. And they 
through you an adoptive stance of taking care of such individuals. Um, and you can have such an impact on every single one of their lives that it's amazing when you think about the redemption found in Jesus. Um, so we all have a part to play in that, I think. Um, we all have a part to play. All right, so that leads to the second point. So this would not be a good Protestant sermon on Genesis 15, 1-6 if one of the applications wasn't about the final verse. Um, that Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. I say that because we who are of the Protestant persuasion have been very faithful to proclaim that salvation does not come by works, but by grace through faith. If you are saved from your sins, and therefore from judgment of death, not because of anything which you do, but because of your faith. This is and always has been one of the major differences between Christianity and every other religion and every other worldview which exists, and perhaps the difference. No matter where you look, every other worldview and religion answers four basic questions. And we've been talking about this in Sunday school. Mike, I'm glad you brought it up this morning. Where did we come from? What went wrong? How do we fix it? And what happens after it is fixed? Um, Though usually we only deal with the first three. If we were to do a brief examination of other belief systems, we would find many of them to start in different places. They detail what went wrong in different ways, but they would all agree that the way it is fixed is through human might. Let me give a few examples. Islam would say that we are created by God. The problem is that we fell into sin. And the way in which we fix the problem of sin is by our works through being faithful to the Quran. That's how the Islamists would say Um, If we were to break away from that and look at the sexual revolution of the 60s, it was we started out as sexually, um, naturally sexual beings. The problem is that religion and social taboos, they've hindered our sexuality. Now the way to fix that is by jumping into our sexual passions and desires. And we all saw how that went for the 60s. Um, If we look at Buddhism we see actually something very similar to all these. For Buddhists, we are part of the universe. The problem is our unique personal identification, our individualism. The way we fix this problem is by, as one Buddhist said, by going up to the mountain until all that remains is the mountain. In other words, to be a good Buddhist, one must escape all the physical confinements through rigorous rigorous spiritual pursuits. Um, eh. So in all these, through, though brief, systems of thought, we have a starting location, we have a problem, and how that problem is solved. Bless you. And in each of them, it is resolved by your own might. Now, Christianity, at least historical Christianity, argues something spectacularly different. It argues that in our foundations, we are created the image of God. That's our origins. That we fell into sin. That's the problem. And that we are saved not by our works, but by grace through faith in Jesus. And that's how it's fixed. The whole argument is well stated in the book of Romans especially. Through our faith, we are declared righteous because we believe in what God has accomplished through Jesus. 
In this way we attain righteousness. In this way we are made right with God. In this way our faith works in us so that we seek to live changed lives in conformity to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not because we are justified by those works, but because our faith recognizes the great love of God for us and therefore it causes us to love God and seek to honor him and glorify him with our lives in return. Love is the motivation, not works. Now, Paul argues this vehemently throughout Romans, but one place in particular is chapter 4. Many of the Jewish Christians had a hard time grasping the idea that we are saved by grace through faith. And because of this, many still wanted converts to Christianity in the first century to uphold Jewish customs, believing that unless they followed the customs, they were not really finding salvation. Paul, however, argues this when he says in Romans 4, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abram as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul here, he's arguing that Abraham was justified prior to circumcision. Thus, his justification does not come by following the law, but by faith. Thus, those who come to Christ by faith are justified as Abraham is justified. And there is no need for circumcision as a means of being justified before God. In other words, works of the law do not make one justified or righteous before God. Faith makes one justified, makes one righteous before God. So Abraham sets the paradigm for that God will reveal fully through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. That Christ died in accordance with the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that his faithfulness to his father to be killed by evil men, dying unlawfully by the hands of wicked men, and tasted the death which comes for those who break the law, Christ being sinless undoes the ramifications of the law and is, rem- as, and is resurrected. Thus those who believe in what Christ has accomplished recognize him as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of those who believe because of his sacrifice. The promise for those who believe is that their sins will be taken away and that they too will ascend into the heights receiving eternal life rather than death. This whole paradigm is first brought forth here in this chapter of Genesis, long before the coming of Jesus. Right here we find the means in which God is going to bring salvation to the world, how he is going to bring the wicked back home. Abram is the very first, the first to be declared righteous through faith. Thus anyone who believes, anyone who has faith and is declared righteous because of their faith, are children of the promise. You see, that is the amazing thing that we find in scriptures, that those who believe in this way are counted as sons and daughters of Abraham. 
Now, if you don't believe me, consider what Paul says later in Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Israel, Isaac, you shall have, you shall, shall your offspring be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Paul recognizes that Isaac is the child of the promise, not merely the child of flesh. Thus, it is through the child of promise that those who are offspring are actually named offspring of Abram. Thus, while the Jewish people could rejoice at being descendants of Abraham through the flesh, God has made salvation not by the flesh, but by faith in the promise itself. So do you know what that means? That means that that night long ago, when Abram was so full of anxiety and worry over the promise when he was unsure and didn't understand it. And when God brought him outside and told Abram to stop and look up in the night sky, to count the stars in the sky, and God said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. Do you know what? That night, so long ago, when Abram stepped outside and looked up and beheld all those stars, one of those stars was lit for you, if you are in Christ Jesus. For you are a descendant of Abraham through the promise, if you believe in the promise which is fulfilled through Jesus. And you, like Abraham, are justified and declared righteous by faith if you believe in the word of the Lord concerning Christ. And so when you go out, and you look up at the nighttime sky, and you behold all those same stars that Abraham saw so many years ago, you can say with confidence, I am in Christ, one of those stars was lit for me. You can be reminded of the faithfulness of God's promise every single time you look up because you are one of the offspring which comes through the child of promise. My hope to you is that you would remember this important moment in the history of the world, that you would remember that when Abram was promised in an uncountable offspring, that you are part of the promise being fulfilled in Christ Jesus by faith that you receive the inheritance, the promises, if you believe by faith, that you would cling to Jesus, the one who was promised to come and who has come and has claimed victory, that through him God has made a way for us to be declared righteous by our faith in what he has accomplished through his son, his blessed son who is our shield and our salvation, Jesus Christ. All right. I think that everyone... (laughs) can see where the gospel is prevalent (laughs) in these passages. Um, But I still think it's important to discuss. Um, And so when we talk about origins, and we saw how 
um, earlier on in Genesis, how all the cosmos is created by God, and that includes humanity. But then we also see in this passage how every offspring is a gift from God. So therefore, everyone who exists today is a blessing, is, has their origins in God himself, who brings us about to exist at all. Um, and so in this, we do see a hint of that same truth being told repeatedly to us of our origins in God himself. But we also find here another's kind of origins. And that is how we have, by faith, are declared righteous. Because not before this, we do have hints of faith being, um, being involved in Noah and with Seth. But it's here that it is declared for the first time. And so we see the origins of the faith in a way. Um, the problem is, though, is that we still fall into sin. The problem is, though, that we still have moments when we think of unborn children oh no, this woman's life is ruined. And we still have moments in our societies where evil happens, where people are shot, where women are taken from their homes and sold. We still have problems of idolatry, of placing other things above God. We still lie, cheat, and steal We still all have these tendencies to sin. And because of that, the problem is that God deserves and God should cast judgment upon us for these things. Because we are an unrighteous people, we deserve judgment. And that's the problem. But in this passage, we find how that problem is remedied. That though we have fallen deeply into sin... We can be declared righteous not by our works, but by faith. And instead, we can inherit the promise that is given through Jesus Christ, that all who believe in him shall have eternal life, and that all who believe in him will inherit his righteousness, and that they will inherit the righteousness of Jesus, which goes beyond any righteousness we could ever attain, and that through him we find salvation. And so when we look out today, and when we consider those stars in the nighttime sky, we look at the promise being fulfilled through Jesus, that each one of us is justified by faith, and we are then descendants of Abraham, who is the father of such a faith as this. And so we're all being led somewhere. For those who are in Christ, we're being led to the kingdom of God. We're being led back into the garden We're being led back to the tree of life. My hope for all of us today is that we would continue on in faith and that we would live by this faith, knowing that our God has redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ, and that through him we have righteousness forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for being the author of this faith which saves We thank you for being the one by whom we have redemption. Because without you, we would never attain redemption. And we could never attain enough righteousness to be declared righteous before you, our holy God. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would continue to provide us the faith that we need by your grace. And that we would stand strong on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is the firmest foundation in all the cosmos. 
We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we are declared children of Abraham. We thank you that we have a promise as well. And that every single promise that you have given, you have delivered and you will deliver upon. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.